Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today I am joined by the author of one of my most favorite books of the year, Kristen Radke. Her latest book is called Seek You, A Journey Through American Loneliness and is a work of graphic nonfiction, which isn't a genre I usually read, but I was so blown away by this book, I knew that I had to have Kristen on the stacks before the year's end. We talk today about loneliness, the artistry in graphic books, and so, so much more. The Stacks Book Club pick for December is A Little Devil in America by Hanif Abdurraqib. We will be discussing the book on Wednesday, December 29th with Andrew T. Quick reminder, the Stacks 2021 Book Club merch is here. The items were designed by artist Hannah Redigzuki of Hanny Made It and feature all 12 of this year's book club picks. There are totes, there are sweatshirts, there are t-shirts, and there are mugs, and you can get them all at thestackspodcast.com slash shop. If you want more of the stacks, you can find bonus episodes, a Discord community, virtual book clubs, discounts on merch, and so much more over on Patreon. If you head to patreon.com slash the stacks, you too can join the stacks pack. Shout out to our newest members of the stacks pack, Colton Collins, Brittany Finkley-Smith, Aaron Teresa McCollum, Rachel Taylor, Megan Courtright, Anna Post, Andrea Montan, and Emily Bierman. Thank you all so much. And as a reminder, this is an independent podcast, which means without the support of listeners like everyone I just named and the rest of the Stacks Pack, there truly would be no The Stacks. So thank you all so much. Now it's time for my talk with Kristen Radke. All right, everyone. I'm very excited today. I get to talk with you all with Kristen Radke, who is the author of Seek You, A Journey Through American Loneliness. Kristen, welcome to The Stacks. Hi, Tracy. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you. Your book is one of my favorite books of this year. It is a graphic nonfiction slash memoir. It doesn't roll off the tongue as well as graphic novel, (laughs) but it's not a graphic novel. And I don't want people to think that because it's real life, true story stuff. And it's incredible. So in about 30 seconds or so, can you just sort of tell folks about the book? Yeah. So the book is basically, um, it's an exploration of loneliness in America, uh, sort of ideologically in terms of our history, in terms of cultural stuff today, uh, through the media, through the lens of my personal life, and then through um, basically science and sociology. And where did you come up with the idea for this book? 
it's a good question. <laughs> I, I find that I have a hard time remembering the origins of projects because they're just so nebulous and you realize like you're, you're wrong at first for so long about what you're working on. And then it, you suddenly understand it. It's like, you have to learn what it is. It has to teach you what it is. But I was starting, I started thinking a lot about loneliness in 2016. It was like a lonely year for me. It was kind of a transitionary time. I've, I'm always looking for statistics about whether or not election years are lonelier than other years, but it feels mm. like they are to me. Um, and so I just started thinking about, uh, isolation, particularly in New York where I live, I, I realized I started kind of like being creepy and like staring at people who were alone. And then I started drawing them and it started as an illustrated series. And I kind of thought that's as far as it would go, but I just got kind of um, obsessed with the topic. Yeah. So obviously you started in 2016 and you have this in on the first few pages of the book, you talk about, you know, I started this in 2016 you're probably reading this in a post-pandemic yeah. world. Yeah. Loneliness probably means different things now. And so I'm yeah. wondering, now that the book's been out for a while and people have had a response to the book and you've had time to sort of think about what you created, how has the pandemic changed your understanding of this book? So that's a that's a really interesting and complicated question. It's yeah. hard to, <laughs> it's hard to, I mean, like... I, the pandemic, I think, has changed a lot of people's relationship to loneliness and their understanding of loneliness mm -hmm. or maybe the way that they um, think about it. I think loneliness has for a long time been a very private thing and the pandemic made it a very collective thing, which was in some ways kind of extraordinary because it gave us right. an opportunity to talk about this thing that has been stigmatized for a long time. But I do think it's important to think through the differences between sort of like systemic long-term um, cultural societal loneliness and then like the imposed loneliness or isolation of a lockdown. And so I try, I think, I think about the book in terms of kind of like a longer, a longer look that has been now sometimes informed by the pandemic. Like one of the things mm. I complain about in the book is like being in a packed subway car. And it's like, you know, most of us aren't in packed subway cars as often anymore you know, things like that. Like there are certain things that feel like almost like relics to me of like my mm -hmm. former life, you know, mm -hmm. in the book. Yeah. That's so interesting. Can you explain to folks a little bit what you mean by systemic loneliness? Yeah. So, so basically, so, okay. So there's, there's two factors in that. One is that kind of through my reading and through, from my point of view, America is a place that really fosters isolation because we're a very individualistic society. It's like, we're all working really hard to get ahead. We're all like learning to depend on ourselves. Like the whole like notion of pulling your, oneself up by their bootstraps is this idea that you can do something alone, which is a total fallacy. We, we all need community in order to survive both like in the grand scheme of human history and today. And then I also think about loneliness in terms of chronic loneliness and scientists usually define that as a period of seven years, but it's uh, at least seven years, but it's all over the map, depending on um, kind of what scientific study you're looking at. And that's basically living in a long-term state of social unfulfillment. Okay. How did you go about researching this book? Because you pull in a lot of different pieces of American yeah. culture. I mean, you also, you pull, you're talking about Harry Harlow and his experiment on mice. You're talking about American like sitcoms. You're talking about radios. You're talking about Princess Diana. You're talking about parenting. So <laughs> how did you sort of approach putting this, huge, I mean, you're talking about a feeling yeah. and an experience, but you're also connecting all these different dots. So I'm wondering sort of your process in researching and also maybe your process in putting it together, tying yeah. it together. 
So research is my favorite part of a project because it's all possibility. It's like Mm. anything could be like anything can still happen. And like you're discovering things and you're like in awe of the things you're discovering. At least I have to be in order for me to like convince myself to sit down every day and not just like watch television instead because writing is so hard. But, um, (laughs) but, you know, so I really have to be enthralled by what I'm, by what I'm reading and then what I'm, and then to work to translate that onto the page. So basically I started reading some books about loneliness, like books with the title loneliness, Mm. (laughs) you know, like really, really like sort of intro um, scientific surveys. And then the great thing about reading as all readers listening to this podcast will know is that it opens up new reading. Yes. You know, maybe a book mentions another book and you get that book or um, it, it mentions a study and you read that study. And all of a sudden I was going down all these rabbit holes. And then like my shelf of full of books about loneliness was growing and growing and growing and growing in ways that I didn't anticipate. Because once you start looking at loneliness, you realize how ingrained it is in all of us because it's such a basic biological function and so I could, I started really seeing it every, like literally everywhere. You know, I could watch like a rerun of Mad Men and be like, well, this is, this episode is actually about loneliness or, mm. you know, look at someone like Princess Diana, who's a really a lonely icon and think about her through the lens of, um, of yours loneliness. Do you still now see loneliness everywhere? Definitely. Does yeah. that do something to you? Does that, is that soothing? Is that saddening? Like, what is that like? It's both, I think. Like, I do feel like I, I mentioned, I, I talk about this a lot, but I do feel like writing a book about loneliness made me a less lonely person because I understand it more. And mm-hmm. for me, understanding something is so essential to being able to kind of move through it. But it is it is saddening. I mean, I, I think more than I see loneliness everywhere, I see a need for community everywhere. Mm. And I see all of these moments where like what we're really driving towards is community and how community can be both harmful and um, extremely necessary and beneficial. Yeah. What you said about sort of writing of this book, making you feel like maybe less alone a little bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I had that experience reading the book. I Aww. I felt like, oh, I'm not special when I feel alone and sad. Like, I'm not special when I feel isolated. Like, I'm actually part of something that other exactly. people experience. And so in that way, it's, the book sort of gave a sense of community, if you will, like with well, other so nice. lonely readers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I definitely was like... I remember having conversations with my editor where he's like, we have to be careful. This can't be too depressing. And I'm like, for me, it is a a really hopeful book because it's about how it's this feeling that feels very private and very shameful is actually universal. And that it's a, it's a tool we can use to sort of bring ourselves back to each other. I mean, if you look at why, and and that's, I think why they're going back to the question about research, why that research was so fascinating to me is because there's just things that I never could have imagined, but that makes so much sense when I think mm. through it. Like, like the reason, well, like the reason that we feel, so our brains can't differentiate between physical pain and emotional pain. Like it, your brain reacts exactly the same way. Like it doesn't know the difference, which is fascinating and <laughs> to- makes total sense when you think about how, how, how difficult and how painful emotional pain is. So loneliness is a kind of emotional pain and so in like when we're, we were like early humans and we needed each other to survive in a really basic way, like for warmth or um, because we needed someone to like hunt while we gathered or whatever, you know, we needed to be together or we were really in danger. So when we when we felt this 
alarm bell basically in our brains of about emotional pain, it was because it was trying to propel us back to each other because we were in physical danger if we were alone. Mm. So all of those, all of those mechanisms are still inside our heads now, even though we live in a world that's quite different in which a lot of us spend, you know, all of our time at an office job or alone in our cars, like those, those hormones are still kind of coursing through our bodies because our bodies still don't know we're not out of that kind of flight or flight stage that we were in when we were earlier humans. Right. Do you, as someone who loves research, I mean, I think one of the reasons I love to read, especially nonfiction and about a lot of different topics is I like to pretend, you know, that I'm an expert on something totally. and like reading a book like, like, like your book. I was like, oh, I learned all this stuff about monkeys. <laughs> I'm so smart now. But I'm wondering as the writer who you're taking in a lot more to sort of digest it and then turn it into something else. Mm -hmm. Is it hard for you to walk away from the subject matter? Like as you prepare for whatever's next or, or is it something that you're like, okay, I've been steeped in loneliness for five years and now I'm really excited to write a thing about unicorns or whatever. (laughs) I mean, with every other project I've ever worked on, yes. By the time the project is done, I'm like, I can't talk about this or think about this anymore. But loneliness is so ingrained in who we are as human Mm. people that it still feels like it's on my mind. And I think that's one of the reasons why I mentioned community earlier. This book was about disconnection. My next book is really about connection because I'm not done thinking through these problems and these questions. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm so excited. Yay. You just really, you really (laughs) perked me up at the end of the year here. Um, I want to talk a second longer about the pandemic and then I want to completely shift. You mentioned the pandemic, like I said before, was there a reason why you chose not to dive deeper into that in the book Mm -hmm. and hold back for this moment? Yeah, because I felt like the the longer, you know, it's easy when we talk about loneliness. I mean, really, it's easy when we talk about any sort of societal problems right now to filter them through the lens of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. which is because that's the the reality we live in. But I wanted to separate the two things because I don't want to suggest that loneliness is a pandemic problem. Right. Like the pandemic exacerbated feelings of loneliness, but it was it is not the cause of loneliness. And so I, that's the main reason why. Additionally, you know, I, I remember finishing copy edits for this book in, in May of 2020. And while well, there was like sirens outside my you know house 24-7 and we were still on lockdown. And, and I just had no idea what it, it felt like I could either say this is what I think will happen during the pandemic or mm. I, because of loneliness. Or I can look back at like hundreds of years of history and and say, you know, kind of what that means for us you know, in this present moment and going forward based on that. Yeah. I'm glad you didn't include more on the pandemic. Not that that matters, but for me as a reader, (laughs) I just was like, I don't know. I don't, I don't need that. Like this book has, the book has said what needed to be said about loneliness and the pandemic, like you said, is, is part of a much larger history of loneliness and not, not the starting off point. So I'm sort of glad that you didn't. And I, cause I feel like that would have let people off the hook in some ways, and by people, I mean me, the person who read it. <laughs> I'm not really speaking well, for I mean, others. I, no, I mean, like, I I also feel like there is a fair amount of, like, pandemic fatigue in terms of, like, reading about mm-hmm. the pandemic because it's just, like, it's already so arduous and grueling to be inside of it and has been, you know, for all of us to varying degrees that it was just, like, I felt like I didn't have um, – I need to synthesize information for longer. Like yes. I wanted to look at things within a long-term cultural context rather than something that was still kind of unfolding around me. Yeah, that makes total sense. You mentioned that your editor was like, we don't want to make this too bleak. <laughs> but I have to say, 
I I did weep in the bathtub reading this book. I have very strong Aww. memories of reading this in the bathtub, which is like the most dangerous place to read a graphic book. But I couldn't not read it. And I really love taking baths. So I was like, you know what? We're I just going to do it. Too. I love it. I have like such strong visual memories of the pages with the monkeys in oh, the bathtub, yeah. just crying and being like, there's too much water <laughs> around me. <laughs> like, I'm just too emotional. I'm in water. I'm crying. But it, while the book is very... I, I felt very sad in parts. I also, like you said, I did feel a little strangely hopeful and again, less isolated than I thought that I would feel. I sort of was like nervous about picking it up because I was like, this is going to be yeah. sad and I don't want to yeah. be sad. Yeah. And it was sad, but it was also so interesting. Like I just was like, I'm learning so much. I understand <laughs> like the, it just, it was like a major aha moment kind of book. Um, oh, good. I'm so glad. I'm, yeah, I'm so glad you wrote it. Um, I do want to switch because we're talking a lot about like the writing part of it, but it's a graphic yeah. book, as we mentioned, and there's incredible art. And I have a lot of questions about the art and you'll have to forgive me because I have read a total of four graphic anythings in my life. Well, I'm very honored to be one of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mira Jacob was on the show earlier in the summer and she yeah. recommended this book. And I was like, Aww. well, Mira is a genius. So let me just she see. Let's see how right she is. And she was so right. But I so I don't have a huge scope of language to discuss this stuff. So you'll have to kind of bear yeah, with no me. Problem. But I want to know first, I know I, I've been reading your first book. I know you were into photography and art. You went to art mm -hmm. school. But how did you come to this form of graphic nonfiction? Was it the art part that spoke to you first? Was it the writing part? Did you always want to write things like? Yeah, definitely the writing. So I, you know, I was always writing. I was always drawing. It took me a while to figure out you could do them at the same time. But I, you know, when I was kind of, when I was working on my, my first book initially, I thought was just going to be prose. And then I, I was still in grad school at the time. In my last semester, I tried a comic I was like, why don't I just try drawing a comic? I had like re just reread Alison Bechdel's first book, um, or not her first book, but her first like big book, Are You My Mother, or um, Fun Home, excuse me. And I was like, why don't I just try that? That would be fun. And it took me so long. And I was like, that was, I loved making that, but I'll never do it again. Cause that was so arduous and hard. And, and then over time it kind of like, you know, called to me from the drawer and I finally came around to, to realizing that that's the form that made the most sense to me. So it's basically now it's just it's just like when I when I began to work in on as a writer like when I began writing as a student I I thought in paragraphs and I kind of composed in that way but now I think like as I'm working I, I'm kind of composing back and forth and thinking through how can I communicate this visually how can I communicate this with text so it's just the form that really makes the most sense to me now I love that What do you wish more people understood about graphic books that they're as serious as prose books. Like, I feel like sometimes there's this bias against them or that there's, there's a misunderstanding about the breadth of graphic books. Like someone, people have a certain sort of idea in their mind about like a comic book or something like that. And that is a part of the form, but there's so much, there's so, such a variety happening in there. So, and I also, I also want people to realize that even if they don't have a lot of experience with graphic books, they can still glean a lot from them. I think sometimes there's like this intimidation about trying something new, mm -hmm. but graphic books are really approachable, which is why, I mean, comics are for everyone. Graphic books are for everyone. And so I think people just need to um, kind of just like feel it out, see how, see if you like it, you know, just give it a chance. 
Yeah, I think you're right. They are for everyone. I was super intimidated because I am not a person. I always say like, I don't like art, which isn't true. But <laughs> I say that sort of as an asshole. But like I, I went to NYU and we had to go to the Met and like write about things and like write oh, that's, about art. That's horrible. That's it's sex. horrible. Like, I don't even like, like, a a dirty secret about me is that I don't even like going to museums. And I I, hate Like, I'm an art director for my job. You know, like, my whole (laughs) life is about art. And I'm like, boring. You're validating me. Thank you so much. (laughs) But it's true. Like, I think I was approaching graphic books like, oh, I have to understand the art and the words. And I have to have an opinion about both things that needs to mean something. And I think once I just started reading them, I was like, oh, it's easy to have an opinion about both things that mean something because it works together. It's not two separate things. And I think that was really helpful for me just like trying, you know, as I said, I've read four. So as an expert in this field, you're uh, (laughs) you're an expert, you're a scholar. They've all been really different though, which is so, which is what I've really appreciated. Obviously every book is different from each other, but seeing the way that the words are placed on the page and the colors or lack thereof, or the style of the art. Like, I mean, obviously thinking of Mira's book versus your book, they're so visually different. It's almost crazy to call them the same type of book, right? And totally. Like, and so I love that. And the other one we did on the show earlier this year was T. Bowie's The... Um, oh, yeah. The Best all, We Could Do. Best We Could Do. I was going to give a totally different title. And that book is also so visually different than yeah. both of your... So like... I, I'm kind of obsessed with the idea of graphic books now that I've read for because I'm like, oh my God, like there's so much possibility here. And there is. Yeah, it's just so cool. And so in your first book, there's like no color. Mm-hmm. But in your second book, in Seek You, you are doing really like deliberate things with the colors that you're allowing in. And I would love for you to talk about the colors in this book in the section. Absolutely. First of all, thank you for saying that it's deliberate. That means a lot. I'm not sure that it always is because this was my first foray into color and it color is so hard. I mean, color is like its own language and you put, you put one color next to another color and suddenly that first color is totally different. And there's like a new argument or mood being, being sort of placed uh, on the page with those colors. And it was just really hard. I I, I took like I'm, I I took like some continuing education class in mm. color theory, and I remember like walking in the first day, being like, "This is gonna fix everything." And then like <laughs> I walked out of that classroom the first day and never went back because I was just like, "I can't do this. This is too stressful." And I just slowly over time like started like looking at a lot of color palettes and like reading books about color, and um, it slowly started to make sense to me within the limited way that I used it in this book. Every time I approach a project in color, it's like, I kind of have to start from scratch to figure out what the colors are. Um, but that was, that was one of the harder parts of the book, but one of, in the end, one of the more rewarding parts was, was seeing it, it turn out in color in front of me, kind of like by miracle. Do you know how you decided which color went with each section? Was it, was it, was there like a process there or was it like, this feels right? It was more of a feeling. I mean, I think in general, comics are about, that's one of the things I was going to say earlier when you were talking about how, like, if I don't understand the drawings or something, it felt intimidating to Mm -hmm, to enter a graphic mm -hmm. book. But it's like the whole point of comics is just to communicate, like, a feeling. Mm. And so that, for that reason, like, comics art is supposed to be very approachable. Even when it's, like, complicated, it's just meant to put you in a, in a particular place or mood. And I, I actually with T. Bowie, I did this event with her once and we were talking about how the artist Gabrielle Bell was also there, who's wonderful. And she, we were talking about 
I was saying that I never know how to draw shadows properly. I was like, I can never make, make shadows go the right direction. I don't understand light at all, which is true. <laughs> and Gabrielle said something like, who cares? Like, it's just about the feeling. Mm. And she seemed like, like shocked that I like cared so much about the shadow. And ever since then, it kind of opened something up for me to think about like, and the same thing with the color. It's, it was just about getting a feeling on the page right. and then, and kind of following it from there and trusting that if the feeling felt right, then I was doing the, the right thing. Or making the right choices. I love that. Anything that frees artists up is like my favorite thing in the world because <laughs> it's so too. hard to create. I think people it's don't so understand. Hard. I think people who don't create don't understand how hard it is to create and the ways that artists make themselves sick over little yeah. things. And then hearing someone be like, why do you care? This is fine. It's all yeah. about the feeling. And you're like, right. Yeah. I feel free. I can do it again. I don't, I, I don't know. Art is hard. So hard. art is hard, and also feelings are hard. And feelings like, I, hard. you know, like, Good point. and so like that was one of the challenging things about the book too was like following a feeling and trusting that it was like taking me where I needed it to go, and then doing a lot of that like mental and emotional work to to puzzle out the pro- the problems and the questions. And I don't just mean in terms of the color; I mean in terms of uh, you know, like the themes and and the you know, I was I was making a lot of um, statements and connections about loneliness. I was connecting like two different things that hadn't really been connected like in scholarship Mm -hmm. or anything like that. So it it also required like kind of like a closing my eyes and jumping and feeling comfortable to do the thing that was pretty scary for me was to like put these, put these opinions forth, like with some semblance of, um, I don't know, like confidence or authority. Right. Right. Yeah. Like saying I, I'm able to make these points. Yeah. Me, this person. Yeah. Just just this human over here. <laughs> just this one. Yeah. What do you, are there any things that are not in the book that you wish were in the book? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the book could have been, I could have kept writing about loneliness for a long time. You know, I thought I would write about a lot about like robots. I thought I would write a lot more about technology. I'm, I'm glad I didn't in that regard, but there's definitely things that didn't that weren't said that I had been thinking through. Mm. I also, I, I wanted to investigate boredom a lot more for me. Loneliness and boredom are very tied together because if I'm feeling fulfilled in what I'm doing, it's hard to feel lonely. Interesting. And so I started reading a lot about boredom, but not surprisingly, it's really boring to read (laughs) about boredom. And so I never really figured out how to write about boredom in like a way that was interesting. Maybe that will be a future book. Yes. Oh my gosh. Please write an unboring book about boredom. (laughs) Um, Okay. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have 
considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook, with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Okay, we're back from our break. So you have another full-time job. You are an Mm -hmm. art director at The Verge. How did you make time to write this book? It's really hard. I I wrote this book while I was the art director at the Believer magazine, and I started the job at The Verge earlier this year. But I, it's a challenge. I mean, I, I think I find a different schedule that works for me depending on where I'm at in the project and where I'm at in my job. Like at The Verge, I try to write in the morning before work, which is sometimes possible and sometimes (laughs) not, especially because I just need a minute to like come into my brain. And so a lot of times I find that the, I'm finally doing that right when it's like time for my first meeting for work. Mm. And, you know, so I I will say that I have not yet figured it out uh, in this new job, but I, in general, I would say it's a constant reimagining of like what a day is going to be, or like, I'm constantly kind of checking in with myself and, and making sure I'm making enough time for, for writing. But I think that's the big, to me, that's probably the biggest challenge of being an artist is, is protecting the time I need to make art. Yeah. How do you like to write? If you, if you're writing ideally, where are you? How many hours a day? Do you have music or no music? Do you have snacks and beverages? That part's important. Do you have candles, rituals? Like what's your writing setup like? I mean, in an ideal world, if we're dreaming big, I would love to be in like a castle on the ocean with someone like giving me food whenever I need it and not having any other responsibilities. Okay. That would be great. Um, like I, whenever I've had a chance to go to a writing residency, it's like my life feels complete. My, my thinking feels completely transformed to like mm. get out of my own space at, at home in my non-castle apartment. <laughs> I am really lucky to have, uh, 
a dedicated space for writing and drawing. The problem is that I share that also with the space for my day job. So that gets a little bit oh. conflated. But I, um, my partner built this L-shaped desk for me that goes right in the corner. And so I try to use one half for my books and one half for my job. But still, like, it gets a little bit murky. But mm. I like to have as long. I mean, if I can have the whole day, that's great. Usually I can only find about two hours in a day. But the main thing is, like, I get really distracted um, like any, any little sound. So I have like, um, I have usually like noise canceling headphones or earplugs and then like a sound machine and like very strict do not disturbed orders, um, from my partner to not knock on the door. Wow. What about snacks and beverages? Any? Um, I, I have to have water by me at all times, no matter what I'm doing, or I like terrified that I'm going to be thirsty, <laughs> but I, snacks are, snacks definitely are in the distraction category. Like I can maybe have like wasabi peas or something like that. But like, if I, if I want to like eat something more, I really have to take a break or my, especially with drawing, like my fingers just get like gross. If I'm eating. That makes sense. I'll give you, I'll give you a pass on snacks then because of the drawing (laughs) element, because normally I hound people about snacks, but I actually love a wasabi pea. And I don't think in my four years of doing the show, anyone has ever brought it up as a snack. So congratulations. That is a big win. It feels like a perfect writing snack because it's like every, time you eat it, it one it's like a little jolt being like pay attention and it's like not and it's like fast you, know, you don't have to look at it when you eat I think that's key for a snack is that you can like put your hand into the bowl without looking yes this is so you don't know this but the episode that's going to air tomorrow the guest talks about having eating all only exclusively foods you don't have to look at that's like incredible their, their jam um okay do you have different rituals around writing and drawing? Like, do you have a different outfit that you wear when you're in your drawing moments or a different lighting or anything like that? Or is it all sort of one and the same to you? I would say that in terms of rituals, I need a lot more concentration to write than I do to draw. Okay. Like I can, I can like have a, I can like call my mom and, or my dad and talk to them on the phone or like kind of do any of those things I can have the radio on or, or something when I'm drawing. And when I'm writing, that's just like completely impossible. Interesting. What's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? Most of them. Yes. I'm thank a you. very, I'm a terrible speller. Same. Love this. <laughs> I, surprisingly, almost every writer is a bad speller. It's what I found out, which is shocking to me. Well, it's just like the rule, like the rules don't make sense to me. And I think maybe that's part of it is like in writing, we're trying to make language work in the way we want it to work, not in the way that we were like failed spelling tests. Yeah. Over and, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. I, I'm curious. I asked you this about graphic books, but I didn't ask you this about loneliness, but what do you wish more people understood about loneliness? Mm. I guess how the fact, kind of what I talked about earlier, where, where um, the fact that it's, there's a biological reason behind it and mm. it's something that we need to listen to. So I think one of the scariest things about loneliness, well, there's a million scary things about loneliness. I mean, one of the things we haven't chatted about uh, this cheery topic since we've uh, started this conversation is that loneliness is physically dangerous for us. When Mm. we're in long-term states of loneliness, we are less likely to be able to fight disease. We're more likely to have heart attacks. We're more likely to get cancer. We die prematurely. It's really, really terrifying and harrowing and gruesome. And so I think the main thing that I wish people understood is that loneliness is a health emergency. It's a crisis. Mm. And so when we're moving towards a place where people are more and more isolated, like every survey, basically throughout, you know, every five to 10 years, the levels of loneliness in America are increasing. So that's really a huge problem and something we need to devote a lot of resources to on like the governmental and 
um, healthcare level. So I think that's a, that's a big one. Do you think that that is connected to the physical and emotional feeling of pain? Like that our bodies are more susceptible to physical issues if we're having emotional painful issues? It's, you know, it's okay. So it's, it depends on, I guess it depends on what scientists you ask. Okay. <laughs> I mean, basically it's like when, as we're, when we're in a state of kind of unfulfillment and we have that, we have like things like cortisol spikes in our brain, like a stress, our stress hormone goes out of control when we're lonely. And so like, that's really dangerous. Like cortisol building up. If you remember like in the late nineties, early two thousands, it was like stress is the new smoking. Stress will kill you. Stress will kill you. Like loneliness, the, the response to loneliness in our bodies is almost exactly the same as stress. Wow. So that's, I think like kind of first, I think that's really essential to understand. I would say the other essential thing is that is understanding the difference between loneliness and aloneness or loneliness and solitude, because they're not always related. You can be really lonely and be constantly surrounded by people, or you can be totally fulfilled and see like one person a month. And how does loneliness work? I think about this a lot about emotions and and also even physical things like pain is that everything is so dependent on each person. Is there mm -hmm. like a clinical way to define loneliness or is it sort of like the patient or the person says, I'm feeling lonely? So there's this thing called the UCLA loneliness scale. The UCLA, wow, that's talk about <laughs> things I can't say. The UCLA <laughs> loneliness scale, which uh, was developed in the 70s and has been refined a lot. Uh, over the years, but it's basically a survey that you fill out and you rank yourself in answer to these questions, like one through five, and then you tally it up and then your doctor tells you if you're lonely or not. So that's, if you do like a study about loneliness, if you participate in a study where they're doing like, like doing control groups, people who aren't lonely against people who are to see how they behave in certain settings or to see what happens with their health, like you have to score a certain uh, percentage on this test. Mm, interesting. Okay. I have another question about the art part. I'm really all over the place in this interview today, but <laughs> this, I, I feel like I said this to you before we started. I have had a hard time talking about this book because I loved it so much and because Thank it you. does so many different things. I've actually, as a person who talks about books, been struggling to bring my brain into a more linear place when I think about it, which makes sense because the book has so many different elements, you know, and I'm just like not used to that. So I'm sort of having this like panic because I want to talk about everything. And I'm like, oh my God, wait, we haven't talked about this yet. <laughs> but that being said, I want to talk about the cover because the cover is, I sort of thought this book was going to be a funny book. I don't know why, <laughs> really? but the cover is like, it's lonely but it's also like the pink. I don't know. It was. It gives me that hopeful vibe that you mentioned. Like a so I'm curious. Whimsical, maybe. Yeah, it is a little bit. Like, I don't know. Maybe this is a me problem also where sometimes I decide something looks like something even though I have all the clues that it is not that <laughs> We talked about this on the Song of Solomon episode where I was like, this book is super hopeful. And everyone's like, everybody's dead. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This happens to me constantly. But I'm curious about how with a book that is full of art, how you decide what art is the art that is on the mm -hmm. outside. Mm -hmm. Because a book that's all prose, it's like, okay, this image is the only one. But with a book that's full of images, how do you as the artist decide what you want to present on the outside? 
I think it's impo- for me, it's totally impossible. Like I, <laughs> you know, I designed the cover. Pantheon always likes it when their graphic novels des- design the cover that I really did not want to design the cover because it was so, it's so hard to do that. What, mm. The the cover image was so like, the cover image is basically a modification and like an expansion on an interior image, which was selected by um, the, this great designer at Pantheon named Kelly Blair. And I probably would not, I definitely would not have selected it had she not pointed it out. It's like, I kind of had to see it through fresh eyes. And then, and then once she was like, what about this image? I could kind of work from there and figure out how it, how it worked on a jacket. Mm. That's so interesting that you needed like an extra person to be like, this is the thing. Well, yeah, that's the collaborative it's different. part. It's, di- yeah. it's a different, you know, it's like, how do you, if you've been inside something for like four or five years, how could you possibly figure out on your own how it needed to be represented in one image? Like yeah. you've too much, you have too much information in your head and you're too close to it. It's like, by that point, like what I want is something that can't exist. Cause I'm like seeing every single part of the book, you know, right. um, it just, it's just too difficult. I think like, it's one of the reasons that you really need a, a team of people working on a book. It can't be a single person's endeavor. Yeah, because exactly, you're too you're too inside it. You yeah. are like and too um, emotionally connected to the things. Like, no, yeah. it has to be this, and everyone yeah. else is like, "What are you talking about? Yeah, no, totally. that's wrong." I love. I, I always joke. I'm like, I, as a person who has my own business and I'm in charge of so many things, I love being told what to do now. Yeah. I'm like, oh, this is what you want. Great. This we could do. Just someone direct me. I'm tired totally. of decisions. Otherwise, you're just <laughs> swimming around in like the possibilities of everything all the time. Yeah. Which is so oh my such a good point. That's such a good point. Um, as someone who has been deep in the loneliness wells, you've been reading, you've been thinking about it, you've been writing about it, drawing about it. Have you changed your approach to relationships in your life where people seem lonely or have expressed loneliness? Have you come up with ways to be helpful? Because I know for me, I am always really nervous yeah. about connecting with people who I feel like are in a bad place, yeah. especially if it's like a lonely sort of place. So I'm wondering if you've got any tools that you've gleaned from all this work. Yeah, that's a great question. So basically the, one of the dangerous parts about loneliness is that when we enter a state, it's called hypervigilance is what scientists call it. When you're in a mm-hmm. long-term state of loneliness and to the point where basically what happens is your brain and your body starts to interpret strangers or new experiences as threatening. Mm. And that's like a, like sort of like a glitch in like our lizard brains from evolution. And Mm. so basically it's kind of like, if you're feeling like rejected, you're less likely to reach out to somebody else because you're like, well, nobody likes me anyway. I'm just going to stay home and watch TV and I'm not going to, you know, and like, why hasn't Jessica texted me to hang out? Like, I'm not going to text Jessica. She doesn't want to hear from me. And it's like, you, you end up in this, in this sort of loop where then you're not, you're not reaching out to anyone. And then in return, no one is reaching out to you. And so I try to recognize that when I see people that I love in that state where they're maybe making assumptions about someone else's interest in spending time with them or someone else's availability based on kind of where they are emotionally. And so I, that my main thing is, is when I see someone kind of um, retreating into themselves or, or closing up for long periods of time in particular, I try to be like a little bit relentless about what are you up to? You want to do this? You want to do that? And like checking in on them a lot, even when I'm not getting a lot of feedback back. Um, Mm. Because I think there are moments where we're not in a place where we, you know, if we're going through a period of depression or loneliness, where we're not really in a place where we can give back in a relationship in an equitable and equal way. 
And so I try to hang out in that state for longer. Whereas before I might've given up sooner until someone can kind of make their way out. Yeah. That's actually really great advice and helpful to hear because like the rejection part of it too, if like you're reaching out to someone yeah. and they're not, then you have your response to exactly. the rejection. And you're like, well, I don't want to reach out. So yeah, that's actually really Which helpful. Which is why um, loneliness is actually contagious. Um, mm. Like scientists have discovered that like, because we tend to self-isolate when we feel lonely, we can actually transmit loneliness up to three degrees removed from us. Wow. And as you mentioned before, loneliness and being alone or solitude are mm-hmm. two different things. Mm-hmm. Are Is there like, are there not like cures for loneliness, but are there things that you would tell people who are experiencing loneliness to do? Because it's not just enough to like go to the grocery store and be right. near people like, right. or like ways to shock the system out of it. Does that exist or probably I don't not? know. <laughs> this is my, this was like the big thing I wanted to understand and figure out. And I do not know this, the answer to that. <laughs> like science really hasn't figured out the solution to this problem, which is why I think that we need to invest so much more in understanding mm. and the study of loneliness mm. because we really don't know. And part of that problem is that like, we shouldn't be making interventions at a late stage when someone's already lonely. We, right. It's about building, it's about building like a system of support from day one or from before you're even born, mm. which is, which is why things like mutual aid and community engagement are so essential because they need, it reinforces the idea that we're all responsible for each other and for our neighbors. And I think once those systems kind of start to fall away is when we find ourselves without an, without a social net. And that's really um, when we get into a frightening place. Yeah. You've actually made me more scared about loneliness than I was when I finished the book today. Oh, so no. congratulations. I'm like, am I lonely? Do I need to get help? Like, I just like feeling stressed all of a sudden. Um, I mean, we're all, we're all a little bit lonely all the time, I think. Yeah, I think so too. And I do think that while the pandemic isn't anything new as far as, as, far as being lonely is concerned, it has made it feel more acute perhaps Absolutely. Um, in a lot of ways. And even though a lot of us are, have, have sort of gotten back to our normal lives. It's not the same. Like we're mm-hmm. not, we're not gathering in the same frequency, at least not in, in my life. And mm-hmm. and I'm not, you know, going into the office with regularity and doing all these things that, that were such a part of, of every day. And that does freak me out a little bit because I'm like, when will this, will this right. ever happen? Right. And it's also, it's not just not doing those things, but it's also the stress of doing those things now. Yeah, you know, it's totally. like, I'm not, going to sporting events, which are things that I used to love to do. But I did go to a baseball game and was so stressed out the whole time that I was like, this is actually, this sucks. Like, this is not worth my time, energy or money. Like, I don't. Was it like COVID stress or was it? It was COVID stress. stress. No, it was COVID stress. It was like, oh, I'm too close to people. Also, it was just like, there's too many people here. Like, yeah. Like, what is this moment? Um, And so I think that's part of it too. Like Thanksgiving was stressful this year and we had eight people and it was, and five of them live in my home. So it's like, (laughs) it was like, what's happening? Okay. I just have two more questions for you. One is for folks who love Seek You, what are some other books you might recommend to them? Well, if you want to read about loneliness, there is a number of books I would recommend. I would really recommend uh, The Lonely City by Olivia Lang. I, pretty much everyone who had ever read that book after they read my book is like, have you read The Lonely City by <laughs> Olivia Lang? And I'm like, yes, yes, yes. It's very good. It's very good. But it's um, totally brilliant. And then there's um, also a book about loneliness that was like my primer to be introduced to the whole subject by uh, Dr. John Cassioppo, who was basically the pioneer of loneliness research. He Mm. died just a couple of years ago, um, 
much earlier than he should have. He was quite young, but he, um, he just, he really was the first person to take loneliness studies seriously. And it happened like, you know, during the course of my lifetime. So that shows how young loneliness research is. And I think he's really a great place to start. Wow. Okay. And then, um, if you, this is the last one, if you could have one person dead or alive, read this book, who would you want it to be? Honestly, it was like probably my dad Mm. and he, I dedicated the book to him and, um, he did read it. And that was really nice. I guess other than my dad, like Obama, probably. (laughs) Those are two great people. I think if I ever write a book, I would want my dad and Obama to read it as well. So (laughs) I'm with you on that. Um, well, Kristen, Thank you so much for doing this. The book is Seek You. It is out in the world. You can get it wherever you get your books. I highly recommend it, especially if you're looking for a last minute holiday gift for someone in your life who maybe likes to think about the world around them. It's sort of an interesting and very cool way to do that. So check out the book wherever you get your books. Kristen, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Tracy. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening and thank you to Kristen for being my guest. I'd also like to thank Michael Tackins for helping to facilitate this interview. Remember, the Stacks Book Club pick for December is A Little Devil in America by Hanif Abdurraqib. We will be discussing the book on Wednesday, December 29th with Andrew T. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the Stacks Pack. Please make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Our editor is Christian Duenas. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright. And our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.